Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about how to prepare our kids for the uncertainty of what our future brings. And that can sound kind of doom or gloom, but it really isn't. It's about how to pivot and raise our kids in adaptable and resilient ways, which is so important. And there's nobody better to discuss this with than Madeline Levine. She is a very well-known clinician, but she's also a New York Times bestselling author. She wrote The Price of Privilege and Teach Your Children Well. And she just came out with a new book called Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. I devoured her book. I found it fascinating. She has interviewed people in very, very high positions and CEOs and people high in the military and higher in the government and entrepreneurs and people who've had to be adaptable and who have been super successful. And she looked at all those qualities and attributes and she talks about parenting and how we can parent in a way that facilitates that, which I don't know about you, but I want my kids to be adaptable. I want them to be resilient. I want them to be able to thrive in this new world that's been going on and, and not flounder. And as kids with anxiety and OCD, they really need to learn adaptability and flexibility and resilience and all those attributes more so than even the average kid, because they're already behind the eight ball. But as I was talking to Madeline and I said, I actually feel like my kids are going to be more resilient. And I want you to feel that way too, because if we can parent in a way that will foster just amazing empowerment, flexibility, get our kids to problem solve, get them to walk towards their fears one slow step at a time instead of away from them. And we don't cocoon them as much as we maybe emotionally want them to our kids are going to knock it out of this park. And we want that. So it was really nice talking to Madeline Levine about this because she really is the go-to expert in the country on talking about resilience and how do we build up our kids in this uncertain and rapidly changing world. So without further ado, here is my interview with Madeline Levine. All right. Well, I want to welcome Madeline Levine to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I dived into your book. Um, actually I listened to your book, so I, I didn't literally dive into it, but I binge listened to it with ready or not ready or not. It's your newest book. That's just come out. I think this Uh month or last month, right? Yeah. February. Okay. And I have so many questions to ask because I think it's all so relevant to all parents who are raising kids, but especially those of us who are raising anxious kids, even more so. Mm -hmm. So what prompted you to write ready or not? So I had written two books uh, before, one called The Price of Privilege and one called Teach Your Children Well. And that was taking a look at some of the same issues around rising rates of um, anxiety disorders and depression and um, just a a general sense that things weren't going well for parents. And um, they were very popular, and yet the needle really didn't move which isn't to say it didn't help individual families, but some of the basic ideas of how you cut down on anxiety and how you cut down on depression weren't institutionalized, right? So getting a good night's sleep, 
um, actually our governor here in California, Governor Newsom, just signed a bill that started school later. I mean, there are things. Oh, wow. Yes, it's great. There are things we know that would be helpful. And while individual families took some of this, the culture didn't. So I got really interested in why that was. I mean, it's not it's not rocket science. Like I, just before I talked to you, I was speaking to a reporter about safe spaces. And safe spaces, from my point of view, from a psychologist's point of view, don't help kids um, learn to master their anxiety, right? They, if you're a psychologist and you come with an anxious child, my advice is not well, don't ever expose them to their anxiety. My advice, of course, is a graded exposure and a toolkit of of skills they can learn to manage their anxiety. So I just was profoundly interested in, so here it is 15 years later, and we're still talking about whether or not it's a good idea to completely avoid anxiety as opposed to learning how to manage it. And, And I just frankly, was incredibly curious. I felt like I had missed the boat. I co-founded an organization at Stanford called Challenge Success, which was a school reform. And we're trying to, you know, get some of these things into the schools. But I wanted to find out why it didn't have more of an impact. So did you find out? Uh, (laughs) Yes, to some degree, I found out. I mean, I, I think I started with the basic question, which I'm, I'm sure your audience is aware of, that there is a significant genetic component to anxiety disorders, um, 30 to 40%. And since our genetics haven't been rewired in the last decade or 15 years, um, researchers like to say, you know, uh, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. <clears throat> so I wanted to find out what was changing in the environment that was boosting these levels of anxiety. And I, yeah, I feel like I found out some of the answers. One was we're in profoundly uncertain times. Uh, look what's going on in the country. I know, I know. scary. <clears throat> it is hard not to be anxious, period. Right. Um, and when what I learned was that when people are uncertain, they tend to make conservative decisions, meaning decisions that used to work. So it's kind of like, um, well, I went to Brown, so it's got to be great for my kid. Well, maybe, maybe not. So, so one of the things is the high level of anxiety. One of them is the constant <laughs> and misplaced pressure to excel in a way that used to work, but is not the paradigm for any major organizations or businesses anymore. So we're looking at the wrong things. And to give you an example, my husband's cousin is the head of neuroimaging at NIDA. That's part of NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health. And I asked him, um, is there any difference in the kids, kids, in the scientists you're hiring now versus 15 years ago? And he said, absolutely. This is my quote. Um, content has moved to the bottom of the list. Now, he doesn't mean content doesn't matter. You know, you got to know your stuff. Yeah. But what he does mean is working together, 
being resilient, tolerating failure, knowing what to do with the kind, all those things are the things that have gone to the top of the list. So we're still looking at the bottom of the list. And I think it's because we're terrified, very, very fearful that in these uncertain times, um, we don't know how to prepare our kids. And we don't even know what that'll look like. Department of Labor Statistics says 65% of the jobs that if you're a kid now, 65% of the jobs you're going to walk into do not exist today. You know, that's anxiety provoking under the best of circumstances. And when you don't really see alternatives, I think it, it and, and by the way, let me just throw in there that, well, one in three kids have an anxiety disorder, so do one in three adults. Yeah. Right. And that's important because yeah. those people are having these kids. Right. That's exactly right. And so I think it's a, a kind of merger of um, anxiety on both sides. You know, we know it, if I'm treating a, a kid for an anxiety disorder, I can, I can do pretty well. But if I get the parent in, I do a lot better. Right. Yeah. So, yes, it's about kids, but it's also about adults learning to manage and tolerate their own anxiety so they can turn around to a kid and say, I think you can do that. Or I got, you got that as opposed to, you know, the reflexive, no, that's too scary. So. Yeah. And I think, I think some parents, if they know that this is going to help their children, they they're, in my opinion, they're willing to move in that direction. But I think there's so many mixed messages about kind of over coddling children there's there's we've kind of swung the pendulum way over to the other side where it's like we don't want our children to ever suffer we want to be with them at every moment we want to catch them and and i think that that's the wrong swing i think it's just coming back right absolutely so in the book i call it accumulated disability which is there are things to be protesting now that add to kids anxieties like early start, you know, starting at 615 or whatever, crazy things. Yeah. We should be, we should be concerned about those who are protesting those. But I think exactly as you described, because we're anxious and our kids are anxious, we start protecting them from things that they have to experience in order to, to deal, whether you're just anxious or have an anxiety disorder. And that, is a really important distinction because people will say, well, I get anxious. Everybody gets anxious. You're supposed to get anxious sometimes. And it's a warning system. It's your early warning system. It's not impairing. If you have an anxiety disorder, it's impairing. Yeah. And, um, and, and I had an anxiety disorder. I had panic disorder for years. So I feel like I'm a clinical and personal expert. And I knew how hard I had to work with my kids to not, to not transmit that because I think anxiety is catching in the sense that you're watching your parents all the time to see how they respond to anxiety and it self reinforces. Yeah. And it can be counterintuitive. Um, You know, how to parent when you're, when you have your own anxiety disorder, but it can make such a huge difference. And you brought up so many different good points in your book um, that I want to dive into a couple of them because I want parents to to hear what they can do to to develop resilient kids. Because I think often 
and I, you know, I have an anxiety disorder, quasi recovered, and you know, I'm raising three kids with an anxiety disorder. It's just genetically rampant in my family. But I always say it doesn't mean that anxiety has us. You know, we can we can work through that, and we can build really resilient kids, even more resilient maybe than the average child because they have these things to overcome earlier. Right. But you know, with the coronavirus, you know, this in this past month, I mean, I think that this is such a poignant conversation. Yeah. 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 You know, and you, you had mentioned just before about um, what we protect or don't protect our kids from. And I, I think, and I think I had started to say it, I'm not sure that I finished that, that when we prevent kids from experiencing normative, normal developmental anxiety, we take away the opportunity to continue down the road and be able to, because life is anxiety provoking. I was just, I was talking to 500 people and I asked who in this audience never had their heart broken. And one person raised their hand. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Hard to know. And, and I was thinking about that. Like, how do you get to the point? Everybody was sitting there, you know, kind of laughing. And how do you get to the point where you have your heart broken if you haven't had small opportunities to learn disappointment and rejection. So the, so the parent who says to the girl um, who's teary, I wasn't invited to the popular girl's party and I feel terrible. And, and mom puts her arm around her and says, that's just awful. We're going to throw a bigger party for you thinking that she's lessening her daughter's anxiety. And maybe she is, temporarily, but she's taught her nothing about how do you recover from all those things in life that lead up to at some point having your heart broken. And I think that's a really big mistake that, and especially if you have an anxious child, right, who you know is anxious, the first impulse is to lower the anxiety that they confront in life. But, and I think you're right. I think kids who learn that early are particularly resilient, but yeah. when you pay attention and make sure that you're not ripping those opportunities away from kids um, by, you know, you're anxious. We won't walk past the dog. We'll go around the corner. You're anxious. You don't have to go to camp. Let's have all your friends. So those kinds of things, which are well intended, but not a good idea. Completely. Yeah. And, um, and I'm, I'm kind of always surprised that, sometimes I'll get that response from parents where they'll say like in my therapy practice or even just online, well, I don't want them to worry. You know, I'm not supposed to protect them. And it's to me, I guess, because it just seems like that's an obvious thing, but I don't think it's obvious to most parents, especially anxious parents. So what would you advise a parent um, who does have a child like that, who, you know, is afraid of the dog or is afraid to go to school um, and their gut instinct, their parental instinct is to say, well, school is causing a problem, so let me just keep them at home. Or walking around the block causes some stress, so we won't do that. Right. right. So I, th- I think there are several things that, that we need to do. Um, we know that the best way to deal with an anxiety disorder is progressive desensitization and a coping, bunch of coping skills. So I, I think the parent, for, the first thing is the parent has to center themselves. Um, Every parent who says to me, I can't stand to see my child unhappy, my answer is, 
you're in the wrong profession. You've got to be able to tolerate your child's unhappiness, anxiety. It's part of life. So first, you've got to get yourself centered. And there are two examples that I use often about how kids become competent. And the first one is, I think we're pretty good with very young children, toddlers. So if a toddler takes a few steps, falls down, takes a few more steps, falls down, like even if you have an anxiety disorder, you're not going, oh my God, you know, don't ever fall down again. We're walking for you. <laughs> right, right. Or, you know, the kid, uh, I just became a grandma. So the kid, oh, congratulations. thank you. So the kid just starting to talk, right. And, and is mumbling stuff. And we never say like, be quiet till you can talk in full sentences. <laughs> so <laughs> We have pretty good tolerance for children because we, we don't, the, the stakes don't seem high to us. Like if the kid falls down, they're not going to be flipping burgers the rest of their life. So I think if you use that as a model of how kids get competent, that ability to walk because you tolerated it, you encouraged it, I think that's the model that parents need to use for how do you encourage your child. So you're, you're on the sidelines, you're watching, you're making some evaluation of how distressing this is because a kid who is overwhelmed can't think straight. And usually at that point, the parent can't think straight. That's time yeah. for a break. Um, and then to come back, you know, let the kid, what, what, would, what would we do in the office? You know, rate it on a scale. How scared were you? One to 10. Um, uh, what's your evidence for it? Let's assume it's a 10 or a 12-year-old kid. And, you know, I think parents can learn kind of the basics of progressive desensitization. It's not rocket science. No. Yeah. It's, and I, and I think, yeah, I do. I have a whole chapter on this is how you do it. Um, because if you don't, you're going to end, if you keep feeding the anxiety, you're going to end up with an impaired kid. And no, no parent is intentionally impairing their kid. No parent. So I think they feel like they don't have the tools for, like, what do I do? Look at my kid. He's beside himself. What can I possibly do? And I think you've got to step back, get centered, and say, yeah, there are things you can do that are helpful. And that doesn't mean you don't ever put the kid in your arms and say, look, I know this is really tough for you. But I think along with the message, this is really tough, has to be a message of confidence. Um, yeah. I know it's really tough for you. I think you can handle it. This is what we're going to do. And Yeah, and I like how you said that in the book, you know, like, when we believe in our kids, you know, and we, we kind of encourage them to face their fears, we're giving them that validity that, you know, if we, if we coddle them or maybe coddling is the wrong word, but if we try to protect them or we circumvent stressors, we're really conveying to them inadvertently that they can't handle it, you know, that you can't handle it. And I like that message that you, that you talked about in the book, that when we say you've got this, and I think sometimes parents think it's just, it's do it or you don't, you know, it's like, it's like these, you either face your big fear or you don't. And it's, there's so much gray in between. Like, can you just walk near that dog? Can you just go across the street? It's not like, um, go pet the dog, you know, let's bring the dog home for dinner, you know, but it's, it's these small little steps that really help. And I, yeah, I like the way that you say that. Cause I think if we can frame it in a way for parents to realize that they're really unintentionally harming the resiliency of their children 
when in the short term they protect them. Right. You know, and it's hard to sit there and watch your child turn into a puddle for sure. Ab- absolutely. Um, and, and I think without a, a skill set of your own, you feel helpless and you, you don't feel like you have many options. It's why I think, look, you know, we do, I said earlier, we do really well treating anxious kids. We do so much better if we got the parent in there with the child. Yeah. And then, you know, I have one family also, everybody's got an anxiety disorder and it's, I wouldn't say it's a game, but they catch each other at it because they've all learned the same skill set together. And, um, you know, I I think a little bit of you, I always think a little bit of humor helps you know, it's not the end of the world. The door, It's not these things that we're so anxious about. They're not the end of the world. And we can, we can confront them. We can face them. I love the fact that, you know, the NBA and celebrities, people are coming forward. You said you have an anxiety. I just got interviewed by Katie Couric. She was talking about her trichotillomania. I oh, think wow. it's a great thing when people start understanding that you lead full active lives and yes, you deal with this piece of your life that can get in the way, but you're doing your best to make sure that it doesn't. And I like the fact that there's less and less stigma um, attached to it. Yeah. I love that. I feel like that's really changing. Yeah. So that's a good thing. So if we were talking about like what things parents you know, shouldn't do, right? So we should kind of hold back, stop kind of cocooning. Um, But what things should we do? And I like the way that you talked about shifting from, there's just so much, and I'm sure you see this in your practice where, you know, in the socioeconomic bracket that you're dealing with, where it's, it's about your stats, it's about your SAT scores, it's about your extracurriculars. It's so overwhelming. And yet preparing them for what our new world might look like in the future, which needs resiliency and flexibility um, squiggly lines, as you talked about, you know, having failures and being, um, having that tenacity to come back. Yeah. How do parents foster that? And kindness, you brought up kindness too. Right. What- so I think it, it's so interesting. I, and I, I'm curious what you think, right? I, I've asked every talk I've given in five years, I've asked hundreds of thousands of people now, how many of you got the right grades, knew what school you wanted to go to, because it's always some percentage of people, no matter where I am. If I'm talking to firefighters in Daly City, a suburb here, or if I'm talking to Goldman Sachs analysts, it's one to 10% of people who shot straight through. That leaves 90 to 99% of us who didn't. And yet we, the myth of the straight line without any problem, persists in spite of the fact that every one of us knows that that's really not the way most people become successful. So I had a really interesting experience. I was with a bunch of young CEOs, meaning CEOs in their 30s, so they're young, and it was some kind of team building thing. I'm not sure why they had me along, but they did. And because I couldn't contribute anything except how to spell because uh, they weren't good spellers, but we were doing, we were trying to solve some kind of puzzle, and it was competitive. There were a bunch of teams, and um, sort of long before I would have thought the puzzle was solved, they're all like, "Hey, we got it, we got," you know. And I'm like, "No, you don't. You don't have it yet. You don't have all your information." And they were like, 
we have enough. And if we're wrong, we'll do it again. And it was, it was a huge learning experience for me. These kids were CEOs, which meant that they were quite successful in what they were doing, but they were, they weren't saying we got it with 5% of the information, but they were saying they got it probably with 80% of the information. They were totally comfortable with, and I clearly wasn't, with the uncertainty, tolerating the uncertainty. And that was a huge learning lesson for me in terms of what is going to be valuable going forward. You're going to have to learn to sit with uncertainty and welcome it. And I don't think that's too strong a word. So I talked to the guy who was the vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Sandy Winnefeld, and he I mean, what could be more uncertain times than the second highest military position in the country? Or like I said, Gorman, who's the head of, you know, Morgan Stanley, people who live in uncertainty. And they all, from 70 to 80 percent, they said, if you're, if you're at 70 percent, the military was, I think, 70, Gorman was 80, you go. And that means learning to tolerate uncertainty in a way that we don't. And if we're anxious and have anxious kids, we certainly don't want to add anything to that. But we're going to have to because, you know, you mentioned coronavirus. But if you have an anxiety disorder, those are exactly the kinds of things where you have to step back and say, okay, I know I'm tempted to react in a way that's not always in my best interest. Uh, let me get some more information. Um, let me take my own temperature in a way. And uh, all of those things kids don't have the opportunity to do when they're protected. And you said, you know, there's there's two different points of view about kids, which I think is very confusing, which is are they sort of bubble wrapped, over coddled kids or are they, you know, mini adult careerists and I think parents look at those two things and go, you know, I, I, I'm not sure about the experts. They don't seem to know. Um, but this is, you know, the area of child development and psychology, uh, as you well know, is a pretty well-researched field. There's nobody out there saying, no, we should be avoidant. Um, the, and, the, and the other way to look at it is, the kinds of normal things like, like there's a monster in my closet or under my bed. Every kid, anxiety disordered or not, has a monster under their bed at some point. And typically we don't say the first time they're crying about the monster, we don't say, well, get the hell up and go open your <laughs> closet, right? We don't do that. You know, the first time we probably go and we open the closet and go see, you know, and then the next night, maybe we do it again. And then the third night you have the kid go with you to open the closet door and the fourth night you have the kid go with you and then the fifth night you stand with the kid while they open the door and you know and a, and a week later or 10 days later the kid's opening the door that's the model for dealing with anxiety yeah yeah and you want to just be moving in that direction mm -hmm. all the time even if it doesn't feel good to you it feels good for the child i mean i know personally when i raise my kids they feel really good when they can check under the bed themselves or they can take the shower by themselves or they can go to that scary birthday party and be okay. 
Right. You know, and, and being there, I think another point that you make is like, it's okay to be nervous and still do it anyway. Right. You know, that teaches such resiliency. The, I read a book a hundred years ago called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, when I was really in the middle of struggling with panic. And it, it changed my life because it gave, do this, you know, this will help you. And it did. And I think to the extent that we have a toolbox of our own, um, we don't feel helpless in the face of our own anxiety or our kids' anxiety. And I'm, I'm just thinking about something. So my youngest kid was afraid. He had a big open window, no covering over it when he was little. My kids didn't have a lot of anxieties, but I did put a curtain over it. And so I'm trying to think as we're having this conversation, was that a good thing or a bad thing? And I I think the thing to, I couldn't start coming down on myself and say, well, you should have had him adjust to the window without a curtain. No, I don't think so. I think it was a really easy solution and was not a pattern. So what you're also looking for, like you can make all kinds of mistakes. People make mistakes all the time. What you're looking for is a pattern of accommodation to normal anxiety, developmental anxiety. So I'm going to give myself a pass on that. There you go. Thank you yeah. And I mean, and really ultimately it's like giving, having them find their own coping mechanism. So, you know, if a child wants to put their blanket over their head and that makes them feel good or a curtain makes them feel good. You know, it's just taking, it's that self-initiative I think of, can you help yourself? Can you problem solve yourself? Can you get yourself out of this over time? Not like from birth, but over time, that's the goal. It's not me to spoon feed you, um, you know, positive thoughts, but for you to think about it. And I think that comes across really well in the book. Um, uh, you're, you're, you've just made a really important point, I think, which is that it's not like we're advocating the parent should disappear and leave it up to the kid. It's how you're guiding the child to confront it. So you just you know, gave a couple of nice examples of encouraging initiative. And I, I think that's where a parent can feel I'm helping. You're not abandoning your child. You're just giving, you're moving it in the way of their taking control of the situation as opposed to your taking control. Yeah. 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 I always tell parents you're in the passenger seat and your child's in the driver's seat and Mm -hmm. take the wheel. They're never going to know how to drive. So bump and they're going to be off the road. So, because I think if people can understand that they're really helping their child, even when their child is sitting in discomfort and they're crying, that that's not a failure in parenting. I think sometimes parents think that. They think like, my child is having a panic attack or they're anxious, so I'm failing as a parent because they're not supposed to have any of these feelings. Right. And I think that shift in thinking of, no, they can have those feelings, but your job is to just coach them on how they can move themselves out of it. Um, before you go, I want to talk about something else, kind of shift gears a little bit. There's something else that you brought up in the book that isn't necessarily related to anxiety, but I just it resonated so much with me is this guilt that we have, particularly as women about having to take care of everything, take care of our children, and then spend, you have to be like your child's best friend. You need to be plenty of floor time, be on the floor. That really hit me because I was like, yes, that's such a guilt that we all have. That's really counter. It's, it's counterintuitive to everything you're talking about. 
So I, I did talk about in the book, in retrospect, my kids are millennials and grown. Um, in retrospect, I would have done things pretty much the same. I would have reserved some more time for my own development. And if I ever write a book again, that's what I'm going to write about is the fact that women, it, it see, if you look at books online, it's like there's a million books on child development. And it's as if our development stopped the day we gave birth, right? And, and, and if somebody says, you know, you should take an hour for yourself, they'll say something like, because it's good for your kids. Right. And it's like, what happened to us, right? right. What happened to our own development? You know, I'm at, I'm at the end of active parenting. I have one kid still in his 20s, but the other two are in their 30s. And it's like, your whole goal is to get your kids to grow up, to get into a relationship, to find a partner or whatever. And, and where are you at the end of that? And not only at the end of it, but all the way along. So I think that women, even in parenting books, get short shrift. Like they're all about what you're supposed to do to get it right. Yeah. And, and every one of my books, I've really insisted on, oh, no, there has to be something directly to women because to the extent to which we're okay, it's far more likely that our kids are going to be okay. And yeah, I think that's critically important. And, you know, and it was actually one of my kids, the same one who needed the, the uh, curtain up, who comes up one day and says, you know, I'm at my 8 million soccer game because I have three sons and I'm bored out of my mind, just like everybody else. <laughs> And, it, and it's not like I would give up going to the soccer games. That was a sense of community. That was good. But I didn't have to go every Saturday for 20 years. My kids are very spaced out. It would be like telling my kids, why don't you watch me um, fold the laundry every Saturday morning, right? We would, <laughs> we would never do that. And uh, I would have taken half of those or a third of those times, hang out have brunch with a girlfriend, breakfast with my husband, do nothing, read a book. I think we need to keep ourselves uh, robust and learning and curious. Um, I think that's better for our kids. One of the most common lines in my office from girl teenagers that I saw was, could you please help my mother get a hobby besides me? <laughs> heard that too. It's so funny, right? Yeah. So I, I think it's good modeling. I think it keeps us involved in the world. I think it keeps us a little less anxious about every kid. That yeah, yeah. I, I completely. I think balance is so important, and it's so it's not selfish to mm -hmm. have your own life, um, and it models that for your kids. I totally agree. I just think that as women, we're not given permission to do that. And when we do, um, we do it with guilt. And so we don't even fully enjoy it because we think, oh my gosh, I'm being so selfish right now. I'm Right. Well, that's like, I think I have a line from a mom who said something like, uh, what could be more important than my child? Well, of course your child's really important, but not every single second. You know, if you're not filled up, if you're not interested and curious and learning yourself you know you're like you're kind of a drag <laughs> and and kids maybe not when they're really young and you know you mentioned balance I mean balance comes and goes 
in a lifetime. So when you have very young kids, it's not the same as when you have teenagers. But but I, I think we underestimate what women need. Sunya Luther has done some really interesting research on this, that women do much better, not necessarily because they're married. They do much better when there's somebody in their life, could be your husband, could be your girlfriend, who who is there for you when times are tough and it's not about your children, that having somebody who gets you is really important to your own mental health, which is like, duh, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It makes sense, but yet people aren't doing it as much as they should. So it's a good reminder today to. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's critical. And I, and I think that, um, this idea that everything has to be child centric is harmful to children and to parents. It's a bad combination. Yeah, no, it's definitely swung in like the opposite direction of what it was maybe in the seventies when I was raised, you know, where it was like, Oh, we have kids. We forgot. (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) I know. Jump into the station wagon. It's like, whatever. I think coming back in the middle is good. And I really feel like it helps anxious kids because I can see that. And I'm sure you do in your practice too. Like the parents that are, um, more balanced, they have self-care and maybe they have more than one child. They're not, their eggs aren't in one basket. They're able to, to do the hard stuff, to get kids to be resilient, to sit with them with discomfort, to allow them to fail so they can dust themselves off. And those kids do better in the long run. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your book has been just a gift to society. I really appreciate it. Ready or not. Great interview. I have fun with you. Oh, that was so, it's my, it's been a privilege to meet you and to interview you. I, I enjoy your work so much. Thank you so much. That's kind of you. Yep. I will leave, I'll leave links in the show notes. So thank you for coming on. Links in the show notes. It's podcast speak, which means I will leave a link to your book in the, in the show notes. (laughs) And you can see what generation I am. I'm like, huh? What'd she say? I have no (laughs) idea. What is she talking about? <laughs> and Zoom, like, what is going on here? Which is a great, it's a great, I mean, I'm not 200 years old. So in this relatively short period of time, my last book came out six years ago. Did I have podcasts then? No. And in my book before that, which is not even 10 years, 10, yeah, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there's not a single reference to social media because it didn't exist. Is that so, crazy? You know, it's like, I'm living, I feel like I'm living the change myself by like Zoom. I don't know what she's talking about. And yeah. learn it. you know, yeah. you're going to have to be able- Right. Being adaptable. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Take care. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Definitely check out her books. I would check all of them out, but start with Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. I will leave links in the show notes, but you can literally get her book anywhere. They do have it on Audible, which I like. Audible is my favorite, Um, but you can get it anywhere. Go on Amazon, and I will leave a link in the show notes. So I hope that you're finding these conversations and episodes helpful and helping you parent in a way that's going to make your child successful. If you're enjoying the show, please don't forget to hit a star on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast. That greatly helps the show. And if you have a few extra minutes and you can write a review, that's even more appreciated. And to show my appreciation, I always like to end my show reading one of those. So Carrie said, 
Extremely valuable. I find this podcast to be both entertaining and informative. I enjoy the stories and find the advice so easy to follow. I've read a ton of parenting books, but somehow Natasha manages to convey this information in a way that makes it clear and easily implementable. I've recommended it to a lot of my friends. Thank you, Natasha. Well, thank you, Carrie. I appreciate that. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to write a nice review and share with other parents what you're getting from it. So much appreciated. So if you have something nice to say or something uh, insightful to say to other parents, maybe I'll be reading your review next time. Don't forget to find the sparkle in everything you do. I'll talk to you guys again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 